Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for November 2022, where our panel of palliative care experts keep you informed of the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. Our host, Dr. Leonie Herx, is joined by special guests, Dr. Anna Voke and Dr. Jean Matthews. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to the articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the Divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the Palliative Care ECHO Project, which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. The Palliative Care ECHO Project is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch. Welcome everybody to another edition of Palliative Care Journal Watch. The Palliative Care Journal Watch keeps you up to date on the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. So led by palliative care experts from the divisions of palliative care at two Canadian universities, McMaster University in Hamilton and Queen's University in Kingston. Our team regularly monitors over 20 journals and highlights papers that challenge us to think differently about a topic or confirms our current practices. The Palliative Care ECHO Project is a five-year national initiative to cultivate communities of practice and establish continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. The ECHO Project is supported by financial contribution from Health Canada, and the views expressed today during a webinar do not necessarily represent those of Health Canada. From today's session, we're going to present top four article selections that have been determined by our team and provide a list of honorable mentions. Please submit any questions you have as we go along through the Q&A box. And for future reference, the session is being recorded and will be shared with registrants uh, within the next week. Recording slides and links to the articles from all our sessions are available on the Echo Palliative website under Palliative Care Journal Watch. We also have the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast. You can catch up on all the previous episodes. And of course, this is accredited for group learning through the College of Family Physicians. So I'll be the host today, and I am Division Chair and Associate Professor at Queen's Palliative Medicine. We have guest panelist, Dr. Jean Matthews, who's Assistant Professor, also in the Division of Queen's Palliative Medicine at Queen's, as well as Dr. Anna Work, who joins us as Assistant Professor in our same division. So we got a Queen's heavy team today, but it'll be fun. Disclosures, Pallium Canada is funded by Health Canada and has revenues from LEAP course registration fees and Pallium pocketbooks. And this program, of course, has received contributions specifically from Health Canada. And myself and Dr. Jean Matthews and Anna Work have no conflicts of interest or disclosures today. So today we're gonna go through four articles, one looking at prognostication, another looking at scaling out a compassionate community initiative, a third looking at cardiac cachexia, and lastly talking about bupropenorphine. So we're just going to get right into it and hand it over to Dr. Matthews. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Herx. So to kick us off, this first study, it's titled, Are Prognostic Scores Better Than Clinician Judgment? A Prospective Study Using Three Models. This was, the authors were here, Tsuga and colleagues, and this was published from uh, Japan. It's published in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management earlier this year. 
So coming to the background, we know there are several prognostic models that we use in palliative care, such as the palliative performance scale, which was initially not intended as a prognostic model. It was supposed to be a way to assess functional status, but especially in cancer, it has been used as a prognostic model. So that's PPS. The other ones are PPI, palliative prognostic index, palliative prognostic score, that's PAP. And these have been developed to complement clinician prediction of survival, that is CPS. So we've got a bunch of abbreviations there. However, few studies with large samples have been conducted to show which of these tools have better performance than CPS in patients with weeks of survival. Some of the previous studies have shown that clinician prediction of survival is often optimistic and has a prognostic performance of 20 to 30%, whereas some of these other tools have a performance of between 60 to 70%. So before getting into the methods, I'll just go into the tools in a bit of detail. The PPI was developed and validated initially in Japan. It uses five variables. So oral intake, edema, dyspnea at rest, delirium, and PPS itself is used as one of the variables. The PAP is developed in Italy, and it comprises of clinician prediction of survival is one of the variables, then performance status, dyspnea, anorexia, and notably, it includes blood work. So you get leukocyte count and lymphocyte percentage. And finally, clinician prediction of survival, we get it by asking the palliative care provider, how long do you think this patient will live in days? So coming to the objectives, it is to compare the prognostic performance of these three tools, PPS, PPI, and PAP, against clinician prediction of survival in inpatients with advanced cancer admitted to palliative care units in Japan. And this was a secondary analysis of a multicenter prospective study. In terms of the results, notably, this has one of the highest numbers of patients, so 1896, 1896 patients with a median overall survival of 19 days. What they found was that all four models had good performance, so between 70 to 80% in predicting survival of patients in their last weeks, and notably, the CPS and PAP were consistently better or significantly better than PPS and PPI. So the strengths, this was, as I said, one of the first large-scale and monthly center study to compare the prognostic performances of these three tools against clinician prediction. Limitations, this was a study conducted in PCUs in Japan, and crucially, it was only in advanced cancer patients, so this limits some of the generalizability. Second, it requires laboratory data to calculate the PAP, and so depending on when the blood work was collected, it might change the results compared to other studies. And third, Thirdly, considering the nature of a secondary analysis, they recommend further prospective studies. Some additional comments. Compared to previous studies, most previous studies have reported that prognostic scales actually do much better than CPS. But this particular study and some others show that CPS was equal to or more accurate than prognostic tools. So it's still quite controversial. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to present this study was that for those settings where we think that this is a good QI initiative to find out how we can improve our prediction of survival, this is especially relevant if we want to know uh, how we can better triage patients who may be appropriate for a palliative care unit. Conducting such a study in your own setting may be a good practice to improve QI in that aspect, because as the authors noted, the results can vary depending on the patient population, depending on physician characteristics, and the timeframes evaluated. So that's the reason I want to present this, and now I'd like to open it up to the panel.
Thanks, Jean. When I was looking through this paper, it wasn't clear to me whether or not they only accepted cancer patients at their PCU, because obviously we know that PPS is not the best predictor for prognosis in the non-cancer setting. So I couldn't quite figure it out in the paper, but obviously that would have implications for using the PPS as part of your clinical assessment as well. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great point. And one of the main limitations of this, because as you said, PPS isn't going to be very helpful in a non-cancer setting. And this study was exclusively limited to patients with advanced cancer, which kind of limits its generalizability. But I'm curious to know, and maybe the audience can comment on this as well, do you feel whether there's a need for this kind of QI in your setting? The other thought I had was about prognosis-based palliative care versus needs-based palliative care. As we know, we're shifting more now to needs-based palliative care. And the real kind of scope of this kind of study might be more about triaging for admitting to palliative care unit. Anna, any thoughts? Yeah, thanks for the uh, presentation. I always um, remember there are some people where the PPS isn't quite helpful. And I think a lot of people tend to think, oh, if they have a PPS of 10% or 20, then their their prognosis is quite short. But we have to remember that there are other patients who, for example, have hematological cancers or head and neck cancers who maybe actually have a high PPS, but could suddenly die due to some impending airway, for example, or bleeding after stopping blood transfusion. So I think, I mean, again, some limitations, but I think that's where the clinical aspect of our practice comes in as well. Thanks. Thanks, Anna. So I think we can move on to the next article. So now over to Dr. Work. Yeah, so the article I'm going to be talking about is entitled Scaling Out a Palliative Compassionate Community Innovation called NAVCARE. The authors are Dr. Pessett, as well as colleagues, and it was published in the Palliative Care Social Practice. As we know, public health and compassionate community approach acknowledges that palliative care is everyone's responsibility. So then we need to look at community interventions as well. And there is a need for these interventions that can be scaled up to meet the growing demand for palliative care. So NAVCARE, which stands for Navigation, Connecting, Advocating, Resourcing, and Engaging, is a social navigation intervention that involves experienced, trained, and mentored volunteers who provide quality of life navigation in the home for adults with declining age. So the objective of this study was to scale out a volunteer navigation intervention called NAVCARE by replicating the program in multiple contexts and evaluating feasibility, acceptability, sustainability, and impact. So it's been done in in different places before, but they wanted to try to scale it out and see and do further studies. So the methods that they used were scale out implementation and mixed method evaluation study. It was implemented in 12 hospices and three non-hospice community-based organizations in five Canadian provinces. And this entailed having volunteers who were trained go into the homes and visit clients every two weeks for about a year. And this occurred in May 2018 to March 2021. And it looked at people who were of older age in urban and rural settings. So they looked at qualitative data, and that was collected from key informants, such as organizational leaders, board members, executive directors, and volunteer coordinators. And there were 26 of those. They also looked at 57 of the clients and family caregivers and 86 of the trained volunteers using semi-structured interviews. And so the data was collected at baseline, but then again at six months for everyone except for the key informants, and then again at, at 12 months. And they also collected quantitative evaluation data, which included volunteer self-efficacy, satisfaction, and quality of life, and client engagement and quality of life. 
In terms of the results, there were 87 trained volunteers, 50 clients, and seven family caregivers who received services and who participated in the research. So they found that seven sites felt that they were unsustainable, two were unsure, and six were not sustainable. And they looked at the different groups. And so in terms of the volunteers, they found that NavCare training was very effective in preparing the volunteers for their role, and they had reported self-efficacy and satisfaction. In terms of the clients, they had a positive impact on quality of life in those four domains of NavCare, connecting, advocating, resourcing, and engaging. And they reported improved quality of life. Some of the things they talked about were they felt that they had someone to turn to. They felt that they were now more knowledgeable about the services available to help them in their communities. They were being involved in things that were important to them, and they had confidence in taking care of their illness. So it's interesting that they reported a positive impact on quality of life, but when they did the actual validated tool for a quantitative measure, it was not statistically significant. And in terms of what influenced implementation, they found that organizational capacity, stable and engaged leadership, targeted client population and skillful messaging were helpful in implementation. And this article is important because it shows that strong intra-organizational leadership can support feasibility, acceptability, and sustainability of a program. It demonstrates that volunteers can have a meaningful and relational role with patients and families and a positive impact on their quality of life. And so we can kind of go beyond just the traditional medical system. And it provides an example of a compassionate community strategy that moves beyond a pilot study to a scale-out intervention that improves the quality of palliative care. Some of the strengths include that it was a no novel program that prepares and uses specially trained volunteers to engage in relationally-based quality of life navigation. It has replicated findings from previous studies and has added to the knowledge of feasibility, acceptability, and impact of the intervention. Some of the limitations included the fact that it occurred over the COVID-19 pandemic, and that led to difficulty recruiting clients, as you can imagine. And so volunteers also were not able to do face-to-face -face visits, so they did virtual visits, and some didn't actually see the clients. Some clients who received services chose not to participate in the research, and so we lost some of their input in the study. And then family caregiver data was not reported because the sample size was too small. The size of the project also didn't allow for collection of detailed implementation data, according to standard frameworks, and the referrals for clients whose needs were beyond what was considered appropriate for volunteers seemed to come up as well. So this is a really jam-packed paper, so lots to talk about, and I just wanted to turn it over to um, Leonie and Jean for any of your thoughts. Maybe I can jump in. I had a couple of comments and questions. So one of my favorite lines from this paper is at the introduction where it says, Canada was once referred to as a land of perpetual pilot projects. I thought that was just hilarious. And it, it really kind of builds into their main kind of message that how do you go from a pilot to, you know, they go into all this detail of implementation science. So they talk about scaling out, scaling deep, scaling up. And this was all totally new to me and really interesting stuff. So, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on that and Leonie as well. The other thing I was wondering about is they do mention in their introduction, they talk about the compassionate communities movement and things like that. And looking at the author list, so they're based in British Columbia. My question is, do you know if compassionate communities had a chapter near them? Were they involved in any part of the study? Those are kind of my thoughts. 
So I think the lead researcher is from BC, and then there's another author who's from Alberta. So I think there are a few scattered across the country, but the main, I think, authors are from the West there. But I'm not sure. I'm, I think BC does have a group that does advocate for compassionate communities and a public health approach to palliative care. And I know that the lead author has done work in rural areas as well. So I think that has a lot to do with this study. And yeah, I also laughed at the pilot project too, because this is a great example of actually their pilots scaling out and, and hopefully they can scale deeper as well. But it is a great sort of sign that you can move beyond that and that can potentially be sustainable if you have some of those key factors in ensuring feasibility and that sort of thing. So I don't know, I think there's a lot of great points in this study, but I don't know, Leonie, do you have any thoughts? I know there might be some questions as well, but I wanted to give it to you too. Thanks. Yeah, I'll uh, move over to the Q&A briefly. So uh, Natalie asked, for the sites who felt their programs were not sustainable, were there factors that influenced the lack of sustainability other than the challenges you mentioned? Yeah, I think some of the issues were funding and certain funds specified for certain projects. The fact that there weren't clear people who I think were maybe designated for this project, and then they weren't really sure of the responsibilities, I think. And then in terms of changing of roles and uh, lack of staff. So there were a lot of different issues that contributed to some of the lack of sustainability. And I think in addition, there were some other resources, and I think there was some overlap between who was doing what as well. And so sometimes those areas needed some clarification, but mainly about having the right staffing that was consistent was helpful. Yeah, and I think that's what really struck me about this paper too, thinking about ongoing sustainability, not just getting something launched and off the ground was something I really struck me is that even though this is a volunteer-based program, you need key buy-in and ongoing dedicated resources at an administration and leadership level to make programs successful. And I think, I don't know that we recognize that well enough in our health systems. Certainly that was the takeaway I took from the author's key messages as well. I don't know, did you guys notice that as well? Yeah, for sure, Leonie. I mean, the question of how a pilot project changes or how it becomes a regional level kind of program, that's a fascinating question. And I think the science of the implementation science and how it can be applied to these palliative care projects is it's some expertise that is greatly needed. I think there was reference made in the paper as well around this is all in keeping with advancing like the National Palliative Care Framework and the Action Plan for Health Canada for the framework. It's well and good to know what we need to do, but without the dedicated funding as a priority to be able to really advance the palliative approach to care and make palliative care more accessible programs like this, you know, can meet a lot of basic needs of people that can't be provided by the scarce healthcare system resources, but they need investment in too. And so starting to think about advocacy and building those into business proposals as part of funding applications, not just paid for health services. So I really took that away as well. That's something we need to do at a regional and provincial level. You want to say something, Jean? Are you? No, I, I was just going to add the other challenge is different programs might be developing different pilot projects and how to include all the players to build a wider implementation. That's part of the challenge as well. That's going back to that quote from earlier in the paper about Canada's the land of perpetual pilot projects. How do we incorporate the work that Compassionate Communities is doing? Other communities doing similar work is an ongoing challenge as well. Thank you. Now we're going to switch gears completely and move over to something 
a bit more medical. So this is a paper that actually uh, Jose Prayer and I selected, and it's on exploring the prevalence, the impact and experience of cardiac cachexia in patients with advanced heart failure and their caregivers, a sequential phase study by Carson et al. And it was published in Palliative Medicine in one of their very recent issues. And I must admit that I didn't actually know a lot about cardiac cachexia, and I found this paper quite eye-opening. And I've learned a lot about cancer cachexia and sarcopenia and frailty, but I hadn't really thought about this. So I hope you get out of it as much as I've gotten out of it, and I look forward to the discussion. So by way of background, cardiac cachexia is a debilitating wasting syndrome, which is frequently not assessed in clinical practice and thereby often goes underrecognized. It's typically associated with a significant and unintended weight loss a reduction in skeletal muscle mass and reduced quality of life. Studies detailing the prevalence of cardiac cachexia have increased in recent years and report ranges of about 10 to 40 percent, but obviously quite a variety. It is well established that malnutrition and heart failure is associated with increased mortality, and there was a landmark paper by Anker Adal in The Lancet in 1997 that found that individuals with cachexia had a 50% mortality rate at 18 months follow-up. Sorry, I should say cardiac cachexia, of course. And then there was a study in 2014 in Europe that looked at the mortality rate in cardiac cachexia, and at one year, it was found to be 20 to 40%. So certainly a building literature, but still lots that's unknown. And much of the research to date is really focused on, as we said earlier, cancer cachexia, and the impact of cardiac cachexia on patients and caregivers remains quite poorly understood, and there's very little qualitative data out there. So the objective of the authors in this study was to do that, to look at the prevalence of cardiac cachexia in a population of patients with advanced New York Heart Association classification heart failure, classes three and four, and also to explore its impact on patients and caregivers. Their study design was an exploratory, cross-sectional, sequentially-based study that occurred across two healthcare trusts in the United Kingdom at four different hospitals. And the study period was between July 2019 and May 2021, notably during the COVID-19 pandemic as well, which did impact recruitment, which we'll talk about later. Um, so for phase one of the study, they collected uh, baseline data on patients who met the New York Heart Association class, that should say 3-4, not 2-4 heart failure. And then they took a bunch of different baseline metrics, including anthropometric measurements, including mid-arm circumference, as well as tricep skin fold thickness. They looked at biochemical and hematologic measures, including CRP as an inflammatory marker, red blood cells, platelets, for anemia, they looked at serum albumin, as well as some liver um, panel markers. They used a series of self-reported instruments to look at quality of life and functional assessments and used all of that to determine whether a person met the criteria uh, for cardiac cachexia. The definition that they used for cardiac cachexia was a weight loss of at least 5% uh, in, the, in 12 months or a BMI of less than 20. And then they had to meet at least three of five other criteria, including decreased muscle strength, fatigue, anorexia, low fat-free mass index, and an abnormal biochemistry, such as increased CRP or anemia or low serum albumin. So in phase two of the study, for the methodology, within two weeks of recruitment, after meeting the criteria for cardiac cachexia, they were invited to participate in semi-structured interviews, really looking at that qualitative experience of both the patient and the caregivers. And of course, the interviews were transcribed and analyzed by thematic analysis. So for their results, they were able to recruit 200 patients during the study period, but that was only 85% of their originally intended target population. For phase two, 
30 of them met the criteria for a diagnosis of cardiac cachexia that went on to do the thematic analysis. They determined that there was a prevalence then 30 out of the 215% of that population, 65% were male, and there was an average age of 74 years. And they found no difference between the prevalence of comorbidities, including a minimal impact of cancer diagnosis, as well as uh, no significant difference in the edema that was uh, associated between both groups of patients. There was a higher percentage of class four patients who were in the cachectic group than the non-cachectic group. The cachectic group also had significantly reduced weight, an average of 61 kilos versus 87 kilos. They had lower BMI around 21 and a significant weight loss compared to the non-cachectic group. So there was a weight loss of over seven kilos in one year in the cachectic group versus one kilo in the non-cachectic group. The cachectic group also had reduced anthropometric measurements, including the mid-upper arm circumference and tricep skinfold thickness. And on the self-reported instruments, they found greater fatigue, reduced physical well-being, greater issues with mobility, and appetite and diet were impacted, and greater challenges to do their usual activities, including overall reduced quality of life. From a biochemical and hematologic perspective, the cachectic group had increased inflammatory markers with CRP, decreased albumin, and decreased red blood cell count. The remainder of the laboratory test did not reach statistical significance, including hemoglobin. For the phase two analysis of those 30 patients, there were four themes that came out of the analysis. The first was that patients reported having a changed relationship with food and eating, such as less enjoyment in food. Patients described making themselves eat often to appease a caregiver who was worried about them. And caregivers as well were distressed about their loved one's lack of interest and food intake. The second theme was not me in the mirror, which they described as a negative perception of self due to their unintentional weight loss, which also distressed the caregivers as well. The lack of understanding regarding cachexia, both patients and caregivers did not understand that weight loss, the weight loss and what was happening to them, and there was little clinical recognition of it by the care teams. Uncertainty regarding the future, patients and, and caregivers expressed significant worry about their overall health and their prognosis and fears about the future and felt that they weren't able to speak about it with their clinical team and no one was discussing it with them. Why is this article important? It shows that cardiac cachexia syndrome is relatively common within the advanced heart failure population, in this case with a prevalence of about 15%, and can have a debilitating effect on patients and caregivers. They recommend that a comprehensive assessment of cardiac cachexia is really crucial to its management, and that all clinicians need to be much more aware of the syndrome of cardiac cachexia and what that might mean for prognosis and needs of the patient, and that patients and caregivers really need to be better informed about the syndrome and use prognosis to guide goals of care discussion. And that it's very important that future work focus on establishing a specific definition and clinical pathway to aid clinicians in being able to recognize and diagnose cardiac cachexia in order to enhance patient and caregiver support. So strengths of the article with that, it provided an updated prevalence rate for cardiac cachexia and some new insights into the impact of the syndrome on patients and caregivers that hasn't been well reported until this time. There were some significant limitations in that the recruitment size was impacted by COVID-19 uh, restrictions. They did say that they reached 85% of their intended sample size for phase one, which is actually pretty you know, reasonable. Um, but because of the small number of patients of 30 for phase two, they were not able to reach data saturation 
for their thematic analysis, but they certainly were able to see that there were repetitive and recurrent themes coming up from the interviews of those 30 people. So obviously further research needs to be done. They raised that there is a possible referral bias when they're recruiting from class three and four heart failure patients to the study, and that there's a possibility of misdiagnosis by the clinicians of this complexity as we raised in the very beginning about sarcopenia, cachexia, and frailty, which are often also common in the older heart failure populations. But they did use that comprehensive definition to try to address the confusion between those things. So, so overall, I think it was just very eye-opening for me. I had no idea about the description of what cardiac cachexia was, how it might differ from general cancer cachexia that we're aware of, but the impacts on quality of life and a prevalence of 15% in this study, which is consistent with those other studies with a range from 10 to 40, really just quite eye-opening for me and thinking about how that might be incorporated more into our, you know, our initial consultations with persons with heart failure was quite exciting, actually, that might be able to help us address things more fulsomely for this underserved population. So, I'm curious if Jean or Anna, if you prior to this paper had also heard about cardiac cachexia or if you were in the dark as much as I was. I think I was in more of a in the dark than you were. <laughs> so mm-hmm. no, I, I think, um, yeah, it did actually, it was kind of enlightening, no pun intended, but it was helpful to recognize this. And then looking, just reflecting back on the patients who have congestive heart failure and cardiac disease, I'm thinking, oh, geez, uh, that would have been a good conversation to have. Clinically speaking, though, I, I know they mentioned in the article, just also the challenge of people who have congestive heart failure, and they're trying to take diuretics to lose weight as well. And so do you have an accurate weight in terms of from the cachexia versus fluid removal, right? So it's a bit of an interesting, uh, I guess, something to think about in, in this particular patient population. But thanks for the presentation on this article. I'll just respond before you jump in, Jean. So in this article, they did take into account the edema that the patients had and, and the weight loss that I said at the beginning of the average seven kilos for the cachectic patients versus one kilo over that one year period did not include edema and fluid. So they were able to separate that out. That's great. I think it is still confusing though, I would say for patients themselves, just wanting to lose weight, but also losing weight and not knowing why they're losing weight. It's uh, tricky. Yeah. And as Anna said, I was also as much in the dark about this cardiac cachexia. And of course, if providers in the dark, then it's no surprise that patients and family caregivers will be in the dark. And so this one quote really struck me. This is from the article. One of the family caregivers is saying, I don't understand where the weight loss is coming from. They haven't got cancer. I just don't understand why. And so, you know, even among patients and family caregivers, there's some lay understanding of cancer-related cachexia, but not this understanding of cardiac cachexia. So it really highlights an important issue that we as providers should be preparing patients and families for. A couple of questions I was wondering, I guess this will all be areas for future research. One of them is, you know, we know that in cancer-related cachexia, we don't have a whole lot of great management strategies. And I don't know if this paper, I don't think it went into too much detail about management strategies, but I'm wondering, I guess future work would have to be, do we have better options for management of cardiac cachexia, hopefully? Leonie, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, they didn't go into at all the management strategy. And I think so much is, you know, we're basically starting with, we need a definition that's specific to cardiac cachexia. Like they applied a definition of general cachexia, right? Um, So really being able to better understand what are the similarities and differences between cancer cachexia versus cardiac cachexia. So can we apply any of the learnings from cancer-induced cachexia to help support those patients? Like, I think that's 
from what my reading of the paper, that's really where things are at. Yep. And Leonie, the other thing I was wondering about is, I don't think this paper has looked at it, but what is the correlation between cardiac cachexia and survival? Because we know with cancer-related cachexia, that can be a poor prognostic factor. And that, again, is something that we commonly will talk about with patients and families. But I don't think this paper looked at survival, but I think this might also be another area for future research. Yeah, there's a comment and a question here. The comment is, it's interesting that there wasn't a difference in the amount of edema of these patients. And you can see how this would be challenging to identify in the patient since weight loss in and thinking respect to, I'm sorry, I'm really bad with the acronyms here. Fluid is a good thing, but how to delineate water weight versus muscle loss is challenging for patients. And the question is, did they talk about the mechanism of the cachexia? So they didn't go into detail other than to make reference to what we know about the inflammatory nature of cancer-induced cachexia, and that was why they wanted to measure the CRP in these patients, which of course was elevated. Um, But interestingly, they didn't go into much of that in the discussion. And as we said earlier, I think it's it's ripe area for study and lots more work needs to be done to really understand what's the overlap with cancer cachexia from a biochemical molecular perspective, or is it, you know, is, is this different and we need to be looking at novel treatments for this compared to what we do for cancer cachexia? Great, great question, Valerie. Thank you. So I think we'll move on to the next article and we'll go back to, to Jean. Thanks. Thanks, Oni. So this final article for today was selected by Jose. It is titled Barriers to Buprenorphine Prescribing for Opioid Use Disorder in Hospice and Palliative Care by Janet Ho and colleagues. They're uh, based in the U.S. It was published in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management earlier this year. The background, palliative care providers are frequently asked to manage complex pain and opioids in individuals with serious illness, including those with opioid use disorder. And buprenorphine is a partial mu opioid agonist, and and it's an evidence-based medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder. But there are several barriers to buprenorphine prescribing in palliative care. So in terms of the methods, the authors, they sent out an online survey to the buprenorphine peer support network, which is basically a kind of a forum that was established in 2019 for hospice and palliative care providers who were interested in incorporating buprenorphine prescribing into their practice. So something like a community of practice. And the survey was sent out a week before their first educational webinar, which was delivered by faculty from that support network. And the webinar was on the basics of buprenorphine use in palliative care. So participants were asked about their ex-waiver status. So I think this is something that's specific to the U.S. It sounds like some kind of licensing that you need to prescribe buprenorphine, so not really applicable in Canada, as far as I'm aware, I don't think we need any special license to prescribe buprenorphine, though full disclosure, I've actually never prescribed buprenorphine. So this was uh, something that I found very interesting. So they looked at their ex waiver status. They looked at active buprenorphine prescription status. So are you prescribing buprenorphine in your clinical practice? Yes or no. And then they asked from the participants, what are the barriers to getting wavered or to prescribing buprenorphine? And then they use content analysis to the survey responses. So they got a pretty good response rate, 79%, 100 of the 127 participants. And they found that about a quarter of them were prescribing buprenorphine. So in terms of the results, some of the common responses that they got, what dose do I use for opioid use disorder, but also for managing pain? 
when and how can I use a full mu opioid agonist? So along with buprenorphine, how can I add on something like morphine or hydromorphone? I worry that since it is such low potency, buprenorphine, it will not make a big difference for patients with cancer-related pain. I'm not comfortable with dosing or converting or rotating to other opioids or vice versa. Inductions are challenging, especially for people on high-dose opioids, and many palliative care clinicians may see that even brief withdrawal or worsening of pain may be a failure in our care. There's no protocol for prescribing or monitoring, and there are few colleagues with comfort to cover these patients when I'm out. So to me, all of this rang very true and sounded very familiar to our own context. I'm curious to hear from our panelists later whether this rings true for them and from the audience as well. Maybe you can mention in the comments. So I thought this was quite relevant. And what this survey finally concluded was that there are several barriers to incorporating buprenorphine treatment for opioid use disorder in patients with serious illness. And there's a need for education, mentorship, and culture change. The strengths of the paper, it's the first to describe barriers to buprenorphine prescribing in a sample of palliative care clinicians. They make a strong recommendation that palliative care clinicians must possess a primary addiction medicine skill set, which includes providing evidence-based buprenorphine treatment for OUD. In fact, they have a very powerful line there, which I'll quote, in the same way that palliative care clinicians cannot provide palliative care to every seriously ill individual, access to an addiction specialist is limited in many settings, including palliative care clinics. Our field must therefore do its part to address the basic addiction needs of our seriously ill patients. That is, hospice and palliative care clinicians must possess a primary addiction medicine skill set. And I thought that was a very compelling argument. So just as hospice and palliative care clinicians are deeply knowledgeable about treating other adverse opioid effects like constipation or hyperalgesia, we could argue that treating opioid use disorder with buprenorphine when it arises during opioid pain management is a similar responsibility. So another good argument that they make. So the limitations, the participants were all those who had shown interest in being part of this support network for buprenorphine prescribing. So maybe they're not generalizable to the general palliative care clinician population. So I thought that quarter, so 25% of the participants were prescribing buprenorphine. I thought that might actually be high compared to a general palliative care clinician pool in terms of who's prescribing buprenorphine. Second, it was an online free text response format. So they didn't have kind of in-depth qualitative interviews to understand the barriers better. And lastly, they didn't collect information about participant demographics, region of practice, and things like that, which may again limit the extrapolation of barriers to a wider national population. So now I'll uh, open it up to our panel. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, I was quite struck by that call to arms in a sense of we have a responsibility for having some basic competencies in addiction medicine, which I think is not well represented actually in our competencies at the national level. Uh, I think, you know, we're meant to be aware of opioid use disorder and, you know, obviously be experts in understanding like opioid use and, and side effects, but not so much around the addictions piece. And I think that's a, something that we really need to think about a bit more because it does have a significant impact on our patients and the ability for them to access care uh, when there's any risk of whether it's opioid misuse or potential diversion. Like I think there's just a lot of, it does become a big barrier, especially in primary um, palliative care. So yeah, I felt quite taken aback and, and thought, yes, this is a this is something we need to look at like on a national scale in our in our training standards. Yes, I agree. I think this is becoming 
probably a wider or widening gap in palliative care is as we're seeing more and more patients who may have similar issues that need to be addressed and not feeling comfortable addressing that. And as specialists, how do we actually give advice to our colleagues and our teams, right? And so I think even as we're looking at how the landscape of palliative care is changing in terms of survivorship, right? And chronic pain and opioid use after years, perhaps of, of using opioids, it's uh, something for sure we need to think about and how do we address that? So thanks, Jean. Yeah, I think what we're good at is you know, we have the tools to screen for opioid risk. So we have that competency. And if we do identify those who are at increased opioid-related health harms, we have some established protocols for how we can address that in the context of a palliative care clinic. But how do we actually treat that? The competency for buprenorphine prescribing. And I mean, in practice, what I've seen is we refer to addictions medicine. And I think this article is really making a strong argument that we should start having some competency to be doing some of that, which I think is a strong argument. There's a question from Valerie here. So do the authors differentiate between prescribing as starting versus continuing or adjusting? So uh, Valerie, great question. One of the limitations of this survey was that it was a very uh, yes or no type thing. So they just asked, yes, no, are you prescribing buprenorphine without any qualifiers to that. So we don't know um, how many were starting versus how many were continuing or things like that. And I see another one from Paul. Is a primary addiction skill set addressed in family medicine or internal medicine core programs? It's a good question. I am not aware. Any of us in the panel aware of this? I think there are some core addiction competencies in the family medicine program. I'm not sure about the internal medicine program. I would hope so. Uh, definitely something for us to check into. But I know there's nothing specific about addictions and harm reduction approaches in our rural college and college of family medicine palliative care program documents that I can think of. And I've recently reviewed those. So definitely something for us to think about when we're and incorporate in, in the future versions of those documents. And yeah. I don't know if there is already existing a community of practice, uh, something that pallium is doing for this, like buprenorphine related community of practice. But I think this is an area where there's clearly a, a need for us to develop some kind of community of practice. I know a lot of colleagues and myself as well, just because we, we've never really trained on how to prescribe it. And again, just comes back to that experience. Like it would be very helpful to have some formal modules to address that and to maybe look at building that in to our CPD competencies going forward. Since we have a few minutes, I was wondering if we could go back to a question that we didn't have a chance to answer in the chat from the first article. So Paul had said that uh, needs-based approach is good for identifying a palliative approach in primary care with or without specialist palliative care consult. But in terms of resource allocation, prognosis may be needed for collaborative primary care specialist palliative care integration or for a setting of care such as PC or hospice. So the rate of change of PPS might be better than a single reading, of course, we know that, and, and identifying prognosis of three to four weeks less challenging than considering someone who has less than a year. Just wondering your thoughts on that, Jean. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, so I agree with a lot of the points you've made here. For sure, needs-based palliative care is the way to go in terms of identifying patients who might benefit from a palliative care approach with or without specialist consultation. I think the role for prognosis-based palliative care and the use of these kind of tools is really 
uh, related to settings of care and specifically about palliative care units or hospice. That's where we really want to have a better kind of a way to triage considering we have a limited number of beds and we need to identify the patients who are best suited for those beds. And I definitely agree, the rate of change of PPS is definitely better than a single reading. And obviously, yeah, a prognosis, shorter prognosis is always much more accurate in terms of estimation from clinician prediction rather than a longer prognosis. And our hope is that uh, one of these tools can help us to supplement clinician production in the three-month timeframe, which I think is most commonly in Canada, kind of what we consider short months as the palliative care unit or hospice uh, type, type of intake criteria. Great. Thanks, Jean. We wanted to just uh, review our honorable mention. There's so many, been so many good journal articles out in the past month or so. Uh, so we wanted to highlight a few that we didn't have time to present today and definitely worth for you to check out. And uh, all of these can be found on the Pallium Echo Journal Watch website. Uh, so the first is a study by King et al. and the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management. Um, it's actually from back in May, but we wanted to make sure you were aware of it. So it looked at the validity and prognostic utility of a needs assessment tool. Uh, for patients with progressive heart failure. And it just really showed how it can be used to address physical, psychosocial, and um, information needs from patients and families. And so it's a new tool that I definitely will think about incorporating into my practice as well. A new paper by Reedy et al. looking at how do you build in universal, universal medical student training in serious illness communication? Uh, it's a Massachusetts statewide collaborative through Atwal Gawande's group. And they have, they're in their first phases of implementing uh, serious illness training across all of the medical schools in Massachusetts. And so it's a very great methodological study to look at how do you go about building the framework for collaborative and getting buy-in to be able to move forward with such a standardized training and for serious illness in this case, but as they make note, can be applied to other types of education across medical schools. The third article is by Carter et al. and is really looking at essential elements of implementing a paramedic model of care and application of the consolidated framework for implementation research. And it's out of Nova Scotia and looks at the learnings from implementing their paramedic palliative care program in comparison to a similar jurisdiction on the other coast in BC who didn't have that and uh, the successes and ways that that can be rolled out successfully. So great learning there for all of us who I know we have a new paramedic program rolling out uh, here in our region in Ontario. So uh, lots of takeaways there for everyone. And then finally by Russ. Uh, Razmovsky Naumovsky et al. looking at the efficacy of medical cannabis for appetite-related symptoms in people with cancer, a, system, a new systematic review, which basically found there wasn't enough evidence to recommend medicinal cannabis for appetite uh, specifically, but the low burden of side effects that was associated with different types of medicinal cannabis means that maybe you could certainly consider it but no robust evidence at, at that level. So thanks so much for joining us today. And of course, as uh, always, the recordings and slides and links for all our sessions are available at the Echo Palliative website. Please check out the previous versions of the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast, and we hope to see you at our next session on January the 23rd, 2023, from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And a thank you to all of our Journal Watch contributors, our large team at McMaster uh, and Queen's University, and our Pallium support team, Diana, Aaliyah, and James. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. If you'd like to learn more about the Journal Watch program or our other palliative care ECHO project activities, feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca. That's echo at P-A-L-L-I-U-M dot C-A. Or visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone. Copyright 2012, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. You can find Airtone's music at dig.ccmixter.org. Today's episode was produced by Diana Vince. See you soon!